Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we get into this text, into your word, that you would uh, enlighten us, that you would uh, equip us, that you would strengthen us. I pray that you would expose in us the various ways that we are denying Christ as our authority, that we are ignoring the mission to which he has called us. But I pray, God, that you will not just simply leave us with a command, but that we will hear your promise that Christ is with us now and to the end of the age. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Don't believe that you know everything there is to know about your future. I know you say, you, I don't know anything about my future, but you act like it, right? We act like we know what tomorrow holds, and it's usually pretty bleak. Don't pretend that you know all of the various mysterious ways that God is moving in your life, working in your life, and preparing you, and even using you. Forty-six sermons ago, we started a series in the book of Matthew, and today I want to close the series with a call to boldness and a call to mission, because too many Christians are running with their tail between their legs, afraid, nervous, feeling unqualified, unworthy, drained, discouraged. I want you to see what Christ leaves us with this morning. This text is called, does anybody know it? The Great Commission. Commission. Not like a car sales commission, not like, man, we sold a big car, we've got a great commission, all right? This is more like a... uh, uh, commissioning an artist, say. Like, for example, at Christmas time, I have a friend, he's an artist, and uh, I commissioned him, all right? He gave me a good deal, so I was able to commission him, but I commissioned him to do a painting of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who my son is named after, all right? Now, why would I commission him to do a painting of Charles Haddon Spurgeon to give to my son as a gift that he'll probably keep for a while. Well, it's because I think he can do a fine job with this painting. Meaning I probably wouldn't commission you just because you know how to use finger paint. All right? We commission people uh, who we know are going to do a fine job with the task. Now, it's interesting that Jesus Christ commissions you. And, and if you're like me and probably every other Christian across the globe, we look at ourselves and we think, seriously? Me? For this great task of uh, making disciples across the globe. Before we get into that, though, let me just ask this question. Are you making disciples? It's a rhetorical question. I don't want you to answer it out loud, yes or no, but just think about that 
as we get rolling here. Are you making disciples of Jesus Christ? Jesus had died on the cross, and if Jesus was just simply dead in the ground, the possibility of his mission going forward was pretty bleak. But Jesus rose from the dead. Now the raised Savior and Lord looks at his disciples and he commissions them with a task. And that task is now to go into all of the nations and to make make disciples of Jesus Christ. In verses 16 and 17 here, Matthew sort of fast-forwards through 40 days of Jesus' life on earth after his resurrection. Just sort of a quick highlight. He appeared. There was the 11. They, went, they were in Galilee. Then there's, we, see, we know in 1 Corinthians 15 there was 500. There's a whole bunch of people at different times. He's kind of fast-forwarding here. And in verse 17 he says, As he appears, some, many, probably most, worship him. Some doubt He could be referring here to Thomas who doubted, or maybe some of the 500 who doubted, but we know that over time, uh, certainly for Thomas, the doubts were alleviated and he too worshipped the risen Christ. And then we get to these last three verses, which is what is called the Great Commission. It's really Jesus' final teaching moment with his followers after his resurrection. My uh, professor, John, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, in seminary, he uh, references this, or likens, rather, these three verses uh, to a, a, a train tunnel where all the various tracks and all the various trains of Matthew sort of meet. Uh, where's Kearney at? Where's Kearney? I've got to talk to Kearney right now. He's, Kearney, we're talking about trains, brother. <laughs> a train tunnel. So think of it this way. Matthew we, Matthew, we have all of these different trains. All right, We've got all of these different tracks. In Matthew, we have seen this theme of heaven and earth, that God is the God of heaven, and, and the ways of heaven are not the ways of earth, but yet God is also the God of earth. That's been made clear to us through Matthew. This theme, this track, this train of authority that Jesus Christ has in, in the book of Matthew. This track, this train of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in Matthew. We have seen this train of God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. God with us. We have seen a theme of Jesus' teaching as being an absolute kind of teaching with all authority. We have seen a, a track a train of, of worship, people worshiping Jesus. And now as we get to these last three verses of Matthew, to use my professor's analogy, it's almost as if all of these various trains, all of these various tracks come together in this amazing uh, train tunnel, if you would. Uh, it's, it's sort of like the fireworks on the 4th of July. And at the very end, you've got what? You've got all the fireworks together at the end, right? We've seen like the little poppy fireworks, and we've seen the streaming fireworks. And then at, at, at the end of the fireworks, it just all comes together in this explosion, this 
climax. That's really what we have going on here with the Great Commission. It's, it's sort of this whistling and the howling and, and, and this, this wailing of all of these trains coming through this tunnel, but it's beautiful. We see the majesty of Christ here. We see all that Christ calls us to here. In these three verses, which we call the Great Commission. But it's not just interesting, it actually does something for us. It's sort of like this great, beautiful explosion at the end of the book that leaves us with a whole lot of strength and a whole lot of boldness and courage. It gives us a motivation. It leaves us with a purpose. Let me break it down for you a little bit here first. Let's talk about our motivation. We, what we have in this text is we've got a motivation. We've got a motivation. So before, before we talk about the mission that we're on, we have to talk about the basis for the mission that we're on. Does that make sense? So if anybody's going to send you on some kind of dangerous mission, what's the motivation? Right? Why don't people make disciples? Why don't we value disciple-making? Well, I believe the reality is, is that we just lack the right motivation. Meaning, we're, we're driven by all of these sort of man-centered goals, and we don't recognize Jesus' authority. We don't recognize Jesus as supreme and as worthy. And so before we get this mandate to make disciples, we're given a motivation. So look at it here in verse 15. Verse 18, rather. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now from the very beginning of redemption history, God has been moving among people on the earth. It, it is clear that God has authority in heaven, but what we see through redemptive history is that God has authority on earth as well. Even when His people are enslaved in Egypt, and it feels as if the empire has all authority, who is it that parts the waters? Who is it that sends the plagues? Who is it that yanks His people out of the empire of Egypt? God has throughout the Old Testament, all authority on earth, right? Now what we see here as we get to this, this climactic end of Matthew is that not only does God, Yahweh, have all authority on, in, in heaven and on earth, but we see that Jesus Christ is the one who Yahweh is investing this authority in. Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And this fits well, by the way, with the Scripture that Kay read earlier, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, where we see this prophetic word of the coming Son of Man, and this is what it says about Him. It says He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations, peoples of every language worshipped Him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There is a dawning of a new age. There's a new era, a new day. Jesus Christ now here stands with all sovereign control, and he is the rightful king. So then, before we get to the Great Commission, what is our motivation? Let me give it to you. Number one, our motivation is that he has authority over us. Jesus Christ has authority over us. You know, some kings might have the position of king, but they're not the strongest in the land. They're not the wisest in the land, but they have authority. Why? Because they have, come on, help me out, position. They've got the position. So you can stick anybody into that position and they have authority because that position has authority, right? But then you've got other people who don't have any kind of position of authority, yet they do have power. So I think of like one of my favorite movies, Braveheart, right? William Wallace, no position of authority. But did he have authority? Why did he have authority? It's because he had ability. He had, he had influence. He was able to get the job done, and a whole lot of people recognized that and followed him. What we have seen in Matthew is this. Jesus not only has the position of authority. But Jesus has the power of authority. And not only does Jesus have the power of authority, but Jesus also has the position of authority. You see what I'm saying? He has all authority. He is the rightful king, and now we have seen through his death and resurrection that he is the king that can get the job done. Both position and power. And what that means is, is that he's got authority over everything. So we have seen through Matthew that he's opened the eyes of the blind. We've seen through Matthew that the lame has, has been able to walk and the mute has been able to, to, to speak. We've seen him have authority over the waters as he calms seas. And authority over the wind as he tells the wind to shut up. We've seen that he has authority over the demonic world. He's cast demons out of individuals. And we see also that he has authority over people. As he looks at some of those very people, and he looks at his disciples, and he looks at you and me. He has all authority. So that's our first motiva motivation. But secondly, what we see here is that he has all supremacy. What I mean by that is Jesus is the most worthy one of the reasons that we forget to make disciples of Jesus is that we forget that he's worthy of disciples, right? Which means we have all of these man-centered goals. So a lot of us, when we think about ministry and we think about doing stuff, we're thinking very sort of horizontally, man-centered. Meaning I, I, we want to just get more numbers, or we want to grow a church, or we want to start this ministry, and we want to have some influence, and we want to be able to build a stage for ourselves so we can have more influence over, over people. 
or even uh, some more pious goals than that. We, we don't want people to go to hell. And so we're sharing the gospel, trying to make disciples of people so that people don't go to hell. Now, some of those are better motives than others, but ultimately all of those motives aren't going to get you anywhere. Why? It's because they're all man-centered. But what we see here, as Jesus says, all authority is given to me. And then he gives us the mission. What he's saying is, is not only does he have authority over us, but he is the authority. He is supreme. He is worthy of all. Let's back up a little bit. We see from the very beginning of scriptures that all humans are wired to worship God. And we see now God in Christ. We are wired to worship God. God. Everybody. Everybody is, is called an image bearer of God, and they are wired to worship God. Are you tracking with me? So like, older guy at the nursing home is someone who is created in the image of God and is wired to worship God. The, the young man standing on the corner is wired to worship God. The single mom who's just trying to make ends meet and get her kids to school, she's someone who is wired to worship God. The CEO downtown in one of the big buildings is someone who is wired to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ. The student across the table from you is someone who's wired to worship Jesus Christ. Your neighbor two doors down who you never talked to is someone who's wired to worship Jesus Christ. Here's the reality is all of them owe Jesus Christ all of their glory and all of their worship. Do you see what I'm saying? And so what we're doing as we are making disciples of Jesus Christ, our motivation is to make worshipers of Jesus Christ. It's that all people who are made in the image of God might give Jesus Christ what he is due. So that's our motivation. Are you, are you with me? All right, let's keep going then. Secondly, we've got a purpose. We've got a purpose. Imagine the United Nations came to you with like some kind of James Bond sort of mission. Some secret mission, and they say, hey, you're going to like work your regular job. You're going to stay in the same area. You're going to live in your house. You're going to do your thing. But I need you to be like spying everything out. All right, you're, you're on this like mission, James Bond sort of mission. Now, wouldn't that all of a sudden transform all of the mundane activities of your life? Like, ooh, I know it looks like I'm, I'm a, living an ordinary life, but I've got a mission. Listen, how much more so if the greatest authority in heaven and on earth comes to you, chooses you, selects you, and says, hey, I've got a mission for you. You're, like, your life is going to look pretty, pretty ordinary. You're going to work a job. You're going to love a spouse. You might have kids. Maybe you'll stay single. You're going to live in a neighborhood. You're going to be a neighbor. You're going to eat. You're going to have to do laundry. But in all that you do, there's this mission. You see what I'm saying, that we have a purpose? Like there's a sense in which Jesus leaves us with a purpose. He transforms us. 
And I don't mean that all of a sudden we, on the outside, look different, but we have been given something that undergirds all that we do. It's an overarching purpose. And what is that? Well, look at the text. He says, go therefore and make disciples. Now, in this entire Great Commission, there's really only one verb. You know what that verb is? Make disciples. To make disciples, right there in verse 19. Now, in our English text, it looks like there's a couple others. Go, baptize, teach. But those are actually participles. Which means what that does is those go, baptize, teach, they're coming underneath make disciples. They're fleshing it out for us. They're embellishing it for us. They're showing us what this looks like to make disciples. The primary task that we're on, the mission that this highest authority has come and given to you is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about that briefly. What is it and what does it look like? What is it? The old theologian John brought us. He defined making disciples in this way. Being a disciple, he said, is taking the yoke of Jesus' authoritative instruction, accepting it as true, and submitting, it, submitting to it as right. What does it mean to be a disciple? It's to take all of what Jesus said and to accept it as something that's true, and then to submit to it as right. Another way we could say this is that we are to make pupils of all peoples. We are to make pupils. We are to make like little students of Jesus Christ, the great teacher, the great Lord, the great Savior, and we're going to make pupils of Him. Of who? Of all what? Come on, help me out. Of all nations. Of all peoples. Now that word nations, we often just simply uh, believe that, that to mean sort of national boundaries that we come up with, and so we're to sort of figure out some strategies to get into all nations. There is some truth to that, but that's really not uh, what, what the text is talking the, the text could better be translated peoples, meaning all different kinds of peoples, which means, and we're going through Matthew, we're seeing Jesus as one who's constantly going to the Gentiles, he's going to the outcasts, he's going to people of different races, he's going to people who, who would have been considered on the outside, and now he's saying make disciples of all peoples. Like for the first time in human history, there is a religion that now is going to encompass the globe, never before seen in human history. And that is the faith of Jesus Christ. As all kinds of people, all kinds of races, ethnicities, backgrounds, cultures, will become followers of Jesus Christ through his disciples. What does it look like? What does it look like? Well, he, he tells us it's not nebulous. It's not arbitrary. He says, go therefore, make disciples. What does he say next? Help me out. You looking at the text? Baptize. There we go. Baptizing them and what? And teaching. Baptizing and teaching. Some years ago, I was trying to get some support for our little church, and someone said, what's, what's your mission? 
And I was like, well, make disciples. And he was like, yeah, 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 I get that. But, but what's your mission? What's the church's mission? I was like, make disciples. All right, how are you going to do that? What does that look like? Uh, we baptize people and we teach them. No, 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 no. It wasn't good enough. <laughs> but it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? What is the church supposed to do? Help me out. What are we supposed to do? Make disciples. What does that look like in the church? What, what, should, what kind of stuff should be happening in the church? Well, we should baptize and we should teach people. What does that mean? Well, what's baptism? Baptism, the word means immersion. It's, it's something that we do in water. We dunk people in, in water. Baptism is, is a sign that someone is a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a sign of repentance that they turn from their sins. It's a sign of their death that they are dead to their flesh, to their old self. It's a sign of life that they've been raised with Jesus Christ to walk in the newness of life. It's a sign of identity that I'm saying I'm no longer with those people, but I'm with these people. This is my family. It's, 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 a, it's a sign of belonging that I am a brother or I am a sister here. Baptism is the entry into the visible family of God. And it's actually uh, fairly congruent with the first point of the, the message of the gospel, and that is repent. Remember what Jesus says in Mark, repent and what? Believe. Well, baptism, a symbol of repentance, death to self, new life, we repent and we believe. Well, let's get on the teaching now, right? If the gospel message is repent and believe, the, the, the disciple's response is to be baptized and to be taught. And so baptism is just the beginning and then the, really the rest of the individual's life, the rest of the work within the church is that of teaching, instructing in a hundred different ways, in a in hundred different venues. Teaching what? Well, look, look at verse 20. Teaching them, those who are becoming disciples, to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice he doesn't say to observe all of the law. He doesn't say to observe all of Moses' teachings. He doesn't just even say to observe the Sermon on the Mount. But he says observe everything or all that I have commanded you. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus is the final word. It, it means that Jesus is the highest revelation of God. That all of the scriptures have been pointing to him, and according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, through him, God has recently, most, uh, most recently spoke, and we have in Christ the word of God. And we teach then everything that Jesus has taught us, which means the whole of scriptures. Whose job is it? Is it just my job? Just Montrell's job? Is it just the job of the seminaries? Whose job is it? Everybody's job. I believe this is a call to everybody. And we see this fleshed out in the scriptures. For instance, in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 2, the older men are addressed. And in verse 6 it says, so disciple the younger men. 
in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, the older women are addressed. In the next verse, they're told to disciple, to train, to teach the younger women. Which means every single person who's a member of a local church is to take on this kind of teaching role in the life of other believers. We are to be taught and we are to teach. That is the work of the church. Now, in, in many ways, I despise sort of these various movements that might focus on conversions and baptisms and completely disregard all kind of instruction. This emphasis on how many converts can we get? How many people can we get baptized? But once they're baptized, where'd they go? I have a pastor friend who once told me, and he, he was kind of joking about this. He says, you know, it's one of the running jokes in our church is that when we baptize people, we don't see him anymore. <laughs> what? That just seems one-sided. How can we possibly say that, how, how can we possibly say that in the last year we've had X number of baptisms if we can't look and see some people in our small groups that are being taught and instructed? You see what I'm saying? We are to baptize, the sign of repentance, the sign of coming into the family, but we've got to be instructing. We've got to be teaching. We've got, it's, it's not enough to just simply get, gain converts. We must instruct disciples, teaching them to observe all things that Christ has commanded. Listen, the fall severely has affected all things. Because of the fall, all things have been screwed up. Remember what God told Adam and Eve? He said, be fruitful and what? Multiply. Well, that still happened, but the problem is, is that because the race fell, the multiplication was pretty ugly. And we have a world of sinners. We have a world of human beings who are under the curse of sin. What we have seen in Matthew is that Jesus Christ is reversing the curse. And he's creating a new people around the globe, all kinds of people everywhere. And he looks here at his followers and he essentially gives them the same command. Be fruitful and multiply. Multiply yourself. Go into all of the world and reproduce all of this. Make disciples of Jesus Christ. I think of people like Jaden Gadson who have a heart that's broken for the Philippines, for people that live in the mountains who have never heard the name of Jesus. Someone who would leave his home culture and, and go, uh, literally go, to another place to make disciples. Or people like Luke Gibbons, who has a heart for the people of France and wants to go and make disciples in France. And I praise God for that, but then I also want to stop and I want to say, but this doesn't just mean that you have to 
go to another country in order to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Like We praise God and we support and we get behind those that do. But every single one of you is called to the Great Commission. That word go doesn't just mean leave your home culture and go somewhere else. It's, it, it's a participle that means while you're going, which means while you're taking your kids to school, while you're going about your day, while you're interacting with people at the grocery store. We are all called to be on this mission of making disciples, and God is, is transforming what we might call the average, ordinary life in such a way that we are all now given a mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. My dad uh, once told me, I think he was probably half-joking, but you know, some things stick with you. He said, you know, Joel, he said, curses are average people. Thanks, Dad. He's like, we're average height. We're about average weight. We have about average success. We're average people. Talk to you later. <laughs> that was pretty much it. But listen, this is in a world where that almost sounds like a curse word to tell your child that we're average. It's because we live in a world where 90% of the books on Amazon have to do with how not to be average, how to be extraordinary, how to be amazing. And the problem with that is then we get a whole bunch of people that hate themselves because they're average. Pretty average. And so then we're constantly trying to figure out ways, how can I make myself more extraordinary? Got to find a new job. Got to find some new horizon. I've got to build myself a stage. I've got to somehow gain influence. I've got uh, to find various ways to make myself more extraordinary. The problem. The problem is when we believe that our greatness comes from who we are and what we do. And so we present ourselves in various ways. We've got no problem lying on our social internet pages to present ourselves in ways that is just a little more extraordinary than we actually are. But is it because that we think that our greatness comes from who we are and what we do? What if your greatness comes from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you? What if being truly great means a little bit more than what you're doing externally and how much influence and power and money you have? Is it possible to live an average life and to be extraordinary in the kingdom of God? Absolutely. What does this look like? Let me just give you a couple categories. I'm not going to hit everybody in this room, but a couple categories. For parents, what does it look like? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 19 instructs parents, and he says, this is, this is the big, like, boom, aha for parents. Deuteronomy 11 says, he's particularly addressing fathers. I'm going to apply it to parents in general. Um, as you sit teach your children about 
the Lord. As you walk, teach your children about the Lord. And as you lay down at night, meaning as you tuck them in, teach your children about the Lord. It's pretty average, isn't it? Average stuff, extraordinary realities. As we're making disciples of our children. Every member of this church, young, old, single, married, every member of this church is on mission. Singles. There are singles in this church who intentionally recognize that they have a little extra relational capacity because God has, in this stage of life at least, gifted them with singleness, and they use that in various ways to make disciples, and it's encouraging to me. I know roommates in this church who are seeking to share the gospel and make disciples among their roommates. People who live on blocks in a house trying to get to know their neighbors, making disciples of their neighbors. Listen, God has been weaving your story your entire life to get you to the place where you currently are. Don't think that there's some other place somewhere else where you would be more fully realized, where you'd be more extraordinary in some ways. God has done, just simply through saving you, the most extraordinary work that you can ever imagine. And He has weaved your story to create you, who you are, where you're at, on your block, in your city, in your house. And the highest authority in heaven and on earth has given you a mission. And not only that, but listen, He's also qualified you for the mission. He has taken it upon Himself to change you. He has turned messed up, broken marriages into marriages that can make disciples of other marriages. He has turned single sinners into single saints as they instruct and lead their brothers and sisters. In this church, God has turned hustlers into people who are truly hustling the Word of God. He's turned greedy executives, business people, into people who are wonderful funders of God's mission. God calls us. God connects us with each other. He then qualifies us for the work, and He commissions us to be about making disciples among all peoples. All peoples in Upton, all peoples in Marble Hill, all peoples across Baltimore, not just on the west side, but on the east side as well. Not just in Baltimore, but people who are living in the Appalachian Mountains, hillbillies who don't have a healthy church within 100 miles of where they live. We've got to make disciples of all peoples everywhere. Not just in the states, but we've got to have a heart for the Philippines. We've got to have a heart for the people of France. Let me just close with this. What is your hope? In some ways, if we just simply leave it here dangling with a call to make disciples, there's quite a weight on us, isn't there? When I consider the reality of my own life, and as you consider the reality of your life, and you think, man, I'm tired most of the time. 
I work long hours, I've got bills to pay, I've got a hundred different distractions in my life, and it's on me to make disciples? And then we start to realize that probably every Christian throughout the history of Christianity has felt that way. And then we look around at the problems and we see the homicides. And we see terror in the world. And we think to ourselves, wow, we have to make disciples of all peoples? That's actually pretty heavy. What is our hope in all of this? Well, as the book of Matthew closes, what I want you to see is he doesn't leave us with just a command, but he leaves us with a promise. Look at the very last words of Matthew. Jesus says, and behold, everybody say behold, Behold. I am with you always to the end of the age. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What is our hope? The hope is he's saying, I'm going with you. You're going to all peoples everywhere, and I know it's going to be challenging, and I know that you have problems up to here in your own life, but listen, I'm going to be with you. This explains the last 2,000 years of how the gospel has crossed the globe through ordinary, average folks like you and me. This explains how Jesus is going to use you as a disciple maker in somebody else's life. I am going with you. I am with you. He's with us. He's with us. Amen? Amen. He's with us. When I was growing up, I, I grew up in a traditional Baptist church, and once a month or so, we would do, that was once a week actually, we, we would have this prayer meeting, and we would, we would uh, somebody would call out a, a hymn number, and we would sing the hymn that was called out. And there was this one older guy named Art Yoey. He was about 135 years old at the time. And every week, he would call out page 250. We sang page 250 every week growing up. And it was a song called, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. Given the reality of life, the reality of worry, the reality of anxieties in this world, the reality of the fact that we want to be on mission, but we're looking at the world, we're looking at ourselves. This song comes to us as assurance, which says, I'm with you. I'm holding your hand. I'm going with you into the future. And I remember as a child, I remember thinking, Art Yoey requests that song every week because he thinks he's going to die tomorrow. I actually thought that. He thinks he might die tomorrow. That's why we have to sing this one again. (laughs) But then as I've gotten older, I've realized it's for all of us. We all need the assurance of God's presence in our life tomorrow. That he holds tomorrow. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'll read it to you. It says this, I know, or I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry about the future, for I know what Jesus said. Today, I'll walk beside him, for he knows what lies ahead.
many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. As the book of Matthew closes, we have this promise from Jesus Christ. I will go with you. Does that encourage you? Friends, listen, we are called by His voice. We are saved by His grace. We are forgiven by His blood. We are sanctified by His power and we are kept by His strength. We are connected by His Spirit. We are qualified by His righteousness. We are commissioned by His command. And because of that, we have His authority behind us. We have been emboldened by His sovereignty. We are motivated by His supremacy and we are strengthened by His presence. And so with that, let us go and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that He has commanded. And look, behold, check this out is what He's saying. I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the book of Matthew that we've been able to encounter. We thank you for the fact that we have not just encountered these words, but we've encountered Christ as supreme, our Savior, and our Lord. We ask, Father, that we would go with boldness on this mission that you have called us to, that we would make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.